Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls, driving the latest news in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. So it's pretty exciting. This We're both traveling a lot, but we can still make time to talk about uh, the primary season that is underway. Uh, so Kristen, what are the top lines this week? Uh, you may have heard the New Hampshire primary happened this week. Um, we will dig into whether or not the polls were right. Spoiler alert, they sort of were. Uh, and we'll look at the exit polls as well to figure out which groups broke which way and what it tells us about the internal dynamics of both parties. We'll also take a look at the news sources that matter most in shaping people's opinion about politics. And is political revolution here? We'll take a look at some polls probing on some of the things that Bernie Sanders, the winner in the New Hampshire primary on the Democratic side, has been pushing for. And finally, there was some controversy in feminist land over the last week with Gloria Steinem. Uh, and Madeleine Albright, suggesting that women uh, would, if you do not support Hillary Clinton, you would be going to hell, or that if you do not support Hillary Clinton, you are doing so because of the boys. We will examine the polls behind those allegations. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not. Um, so, you know, Kristen, I saw you active on Twitter last night warning people to not tweet out um exit poll data, early exit poll data. (laughs) But then there were still exit polls circulating around and some people were emailing them to me. I mean, what do you, (laughs) I guess I don't take a purist view because I just think of Twitter as just a, you know, a bunch of half-baked ideas anyway, you know, on a good day. (laughs) So I don't really feel concerned if there's half-baked exit polls. What did you think as you were watching some of the early stuff circulating? Well, later on in the Later on in the show today, we will interview Joe Lenski from Edison Research, um, and he's got some thoughts on he can, he he will will ask him what he thinks about my my sort of militancy on this question. But um, actually, this time around, the early exits were not as off as the early exits were in Iowa, um, and in fact, the polls themselves were not as off as they were in Iowa. Of course, the pollsters uh, generally thought that Donald Trump was ahead. At the Iowa caucuses with Ted Cruz in second. Um, the polls sort of, they just barely caught Rubio's rise into third, but certainly um, few polls had Ted Cruz defeating Donald Trump. On the other hand, in New Hampshire, the polls got it really, really close. Um, you know, the ending polling averages 
had it where, you know, Donald Trump was in the 30s. Um, you had uh, you still had Marco Rubio doing a pr- pretty strong job in the final polls. It looks like the polling averages may have missed his decline. Uh, but but generally, the polls got New Hampshire pretty right. And so I, I woke up this morning mostly stunned that people are stunned, that everybody seems like so surprised, like, oh, my God, Republican establishment stares into the abyss. Guys, have you not been listening to our show? The polls have shown Donald Trump with like high 20s in into the 30 plus margin or into the 30 plus like support level for for weeks and months now. Yeah. Uh, and, and same thing, you know, Bernie Sanders has has been in the lead in the polls of New Hampshire for a while. Yeah, since the summer. Yeah. And so I get being surprised in Iowa oh, maybe we weren't expecting them to be so close or we're surprised because Ted Cruz won and the poll said Trump. Here, I really think there was a lot of wishful thinking going on. And I admit I even engaged in it early on in the process that Donald Trump's numbers are not real. They're real. Um, and in New Hampshire, I mean, it's easier, I guess, to hit things on the money when you have voter turnout that's 70 percent and above. That makes a pollster's job a lot easier. If you're trying to figure out what 10% of New Hampshire voters think, that's hard. If you're trying to figure out what 70% of New Hampshire voters think, um, that's a that's an easier task. And so kudos to the pollsters who got it right. Um, you are forgiven for not catching that late Rubio deflation because, again, it's this is one of those, hey, there was late-breaking shifts. He did badly in that one debate. You know, what can you do? But but generally, good job, pollsters. Margie, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, it was the same thing. I mean, there were only two polls that I saw that had any calling after the Saturday night Republican debate where Rubio was seen as being robotic, right? So there was one leaked internal poll uh, plus another, I think, ARG poll that had some polling. And so it was hard to really say for sure where, where, the, where Rubio was going based on what we saw headed into actual voting day. But if you look at all of the things that made Iowa hard to predict. They weren't actually true. This t- you didn't have those worries this time around. So you didn't have this incredibly small um, electorate. You didn't have to stand up and say, I'm for Trump, which we hypothesized could have really made the polls overestimate Trump's support in Iowa, then actually turned out and s- stood up for him in, in the caucuses. You don't have that in a regular, quote unquote, regular primary where people can vote on their own. Um, you you don't have a system that over that that truly rewards the the ground game the way the caucuses do in Iowa uh, New Hampshire has more of a town hall style to to campaigning there. Um, the surge in evangelical support and turnout in Iowa, that really led to Cruz's rise. You didn't have that. You also have fewer candidates in the Republican uh, primary this time around, too. And that also changes the the reduces the chance that there's going to be a little bit of errors or picking the the order. So um, so you put all that together and it, it makes sense that the polls were pretty close. Uh, you know, the other thing is, is Kasich and Kasich coming in as number two is not really a surprise to us because we talked about a poll from a couple weeks ago that was just of undeclareds who in New Hampshire, recall, can vote in either primary. And the more undeclareds that would vote in the Republican primary, the better Kasich would do. That's what was true, you know, a little while ago. And it made sense to me, therefore, that Kasich would come in number two. You had really record turnout. You had people waiting on lines, traffic, 
all this people lining up to go vote. So even a even a pig, six, like, a couple hundred pounds, two hundred pounds, six hundred pound pig tried to vote. Was like trying to walk into the voting <laughs> voting place <laughs> at one at one part. Not the onion, actual actual true story. So um, so it's you know people were really excited on both sides. So it's not a surprise that Kasich ended up doing well. I think it's it's uh it's good for the party i think at least as as a democrat's good for the republican party to that there are now there are, you know that bush and Kasich uh can live another day can go on to south carolina christie says he's going to you know take a moment to to reflect before making that move but um you you know i think for the quote unquote establishment lane it's good that that their uh their votes are their the people in that lane are represented and now can move on and be part of the dialogue a little bit more. So I think I think all that stuff is good news. Um, but yeah, I think you know the the last thing I'll say is that I felt like people almost wanted to see the polls be off. <laughs> that I felt like people were disappointed somehow that the polls were not wildly off. I mean, you know, the, I think people, you know, I saw a lot of talk in the run-up to the primary, like, well, if the polls can be believed, I mean, if they can really be believed, you know, then we should expect Trump and Sanders to win. I mean, people just had no confidence whatsoever. So I felt like we were all vindicated, even though it's easy for me to be vindicated. We just have a podcast that, you know, none of these polls were were my polls, but still, I feel that the industry has been vindicated in a way that that uh, that's good. That's where, you know, we should all be pleased about that. I, I think part of the big reason why you saw, at least on the Republican side of the aisle, so many people sort of uh, hoping that the polls would be wrong is because the polls being right meant that Trump just destroyed everyone else. So I think it's a mix of like people just loving to hate on polls and people wanting to hate the result that was being projected. Uh, and, and right now, this is just a very frustrated electorate. I mean, on both sides of the aisle, certainly, but you know, on the Republican side in the exit polls, they ask people, do you think the next president should be experienced in politics or someone who's outside the establishment? And vast majority said outside the establishment. If you said experienced in politics, Kasich and Bush won those voters. Kasich won 28% of them, Bush won 20% of them. Um, but for outside the establishment, which again is where the majority of voters are, 61% of people who said they wanted somebody outside the establishment picked Trump. And which should maybe worry Ted Cruz a little because he only gets 10% of the outside the establishment folks in the exit polls. And he would probably want to argue that he deserves a bigger slice of that pie. So I will be fascinated to watch Cruz trying to go after Trump because clearly Trump is taking this chunk of the electorate and preventing him from potentially growing it in places that do not have larger and larger shares of evangelical voters. But this was also, I, I read it described as the worst case scenario outcome for the establishment because it did not really offer a lot of clarity about who everyone should consolidate around. That if, if Rubio had come in a strong second or third you know, maybe we'd be in a place where Kasich, Christie, and even Bush are kind of like, eh, they're running out of oxygen. Maybe it's time for them to go and everybody coalesces around Rubio. And again, if you add up all of those candidates together, if you assume that all of those people go to whoever emerges from that pack of four, which it might be kind of a sketchy assumption, but, you know, if you make that assumption, then you wind up with a healthy margin of or a healthy number of people in that establishment Republican-ish bucket. But because Rubio came in like fifth, 
trailing Jeb Bush by a very small number. It, there's just no clarity. The only little bit of clarity is maybe it's time for Chris Christie to go. But otherwise, there, this was like the plunging the race into chaos result because it does not clearly say that anybody should drop out. Kasich is not very strong in any state moving on from here. Uh, you know, neither really is Jeb or Rubio. I mean, Trump is the story moving on next. So but before we talk about the polls that are coming up next, I, I want to talk a little bit about the exit poll results and a, a second exit poll that was conducted. Um, so again, as I mentioned later on in the show, we're going to talk to Joe Lenski from Edison Research about the exit polls. Um, but uh, so there was a competing exit poll that was conducted by the folks at Ace of Spades. Uh, well, now it's called Decision Desk HQ. It used to be called the Ace of Spades Headquarters Decision Desk. Sort of a center-right blog, but they're more focused on uh, you know, good data, election returns. On election nights, they have like Google Docs that people can weigh in on um, to add, you know, cool precinct, precinct returns and help people sort of gauge what's going on. They conducted their own exit poll. And this was really kind of neat. You know, the methodology, they interviewed over 2,000 people. Um, they chose precincts by looking at 36 years of New Hampshire election returns. They picked precincts with a nice sizable population uh, where the the Folks in those precincts had voted with the statewide Democrat and Republican primary winners, at least 19 of the 20 combined primaries in that time frame. So these are bellwether precincts. Um, and so these precincts were scattered throughout the state. But because most people live in southern New Hampshire, most of the precincts were in southern New Hampshire. Um, they contacted local clerks. You know, they basically got their volunteers out there and they had their volunteers connected to a tablet, which I think the regular exit, the media exit polls, they like call in results by phone. Um, the Ace of Spades guys, they had, you know, their volunteers had tablets and they had trained volunteers at all of these precincts conducting their own exit poll. Um, and their results were really on the money. I mean, as we'll, we'll talk about later in our interview with with Joe Lensky, you know, the exit polls themselves have to be kind of weighted back to actual precinct returns throughout the night, you know, that they start off a little bit imperfect and they get better and better as results come in. The Decision Desk HQ guys, they dropped their results kind of unweighted as soon as polls closed. And they had the Dem race almost exact. They said that uh, it would be Bernie Sanders 62, Hillary Clinton 37, and the real result was Bernie Sanders 61, Hillary Clinton 38. Uh, so that's ridiculously close. And on the Republican side, um, they had Trump 35, Kasich 16, Cruz 12, or I think the result was Trump 35, Kasich 16, Cruz 12, Bush 11, Rubio 10.5, Christie 7.5. They had Cruz a little bit high in their results and they had Jeb and Christie a little bit low, but I mean like really, really, really close. So they like kudos to them. They did a great job. Their cross tabs were great. They had funny releases that went out with them. Um, they said, for instance, Bernie Sanders is seeing Kim Jong-un levels of support among millennials. Which Margie, we can talk about uh, Bernie <laughs> millennials feeling the burn here in a second. <laughs> Um, but but I thought this was just neat from a polling nerd perspective because there has not really been competition in the exit polling space. All of the networks pull together. There's this one exit poll. You also have the American Community Survey election edition uh, supplement that they do every every so often that you can use to contrast with the exit polls. But by and large, I mean, we're kind of flying on one data point the exit polls. And so having a second data point to work with put together by these volunteers is pretty phenomenal. So I, I feel like a little bit of a mooch right now. I'm going to try to find out a way that I can like kick them a couple bucks because I know that this has to be expensive. 
um, to do. But, it, you know, kudos to the Decision Desk HQ guys because their exit poll was right on the money. And that's really phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, it just goes to show, I mean, people are desperate, desperate for this data. They want it immediately. They want it on Twitter. They don't want to wait for the networks to vet it. They just want it immediately. And then and they get it. And it's usually pretty darn close. So it's um, so good job. That's great. And uh, are they going to be doing exits in the other states going forward too? Uh, so I'm not sure. I think, you know, they, they, they chose New Hampshire and had to spend a lot of time prepping for it and training their volunteers. I'm not sure what their plans are moving forward, um, but actually might be a good idea to see if we can invite somebody from there on the show in the future. So if any of you Decision Desk folks are listening, um, I'll probably be shooting you all an email, seeing if we can get one of you to come on and talk about your project. Cool. So then we'll just talk a little bit about what's next for the primaries and how we should be thinking about those polls before we head into all the other political stuff we have to talk about today. So next up is uh, South Carolina and Nevada are the next two states. And, you know, there are polling averages for those states out there. But uh, folks should keep in mind that now that we've seen now that we've had voting in two states, you have different candidates getting out. You have other candidates surging. It's going to scramble what's going on in some of those states. You also – we're not even talking about the advertising that may or may not be happening in some of those states and and super PAC involvement and, and all of that. So uh, so some of the data, I think, for particularly in South Carolina and Nevada, are – it's a little – you know, it's a little old, but at least in the terms of where we are now, which is in the in the thick of it. So – um, so people can take a look at the averages, whether it's at uh, Real Clear Politics or Huffington Post, of what's going on. But expect to see some of those states now get really hot in terms of polling. What we have now, I, I don't think, is really current enough to say where those races are going. No. The, I mean, that last South Carolina poll was the NBC Marist poll that came out of the field January 23rd. Um, it had Trump 36, Cruz 20, Rubio 14, Bush 9, Carson 8, Christie 2, uh, who knows what it would look like now if Cruz got any bump out of Iowa, if Trump will get any bump out of New Hampshire, if Rubio has wobbled at all, if, you know, Jeb Bush coming in a, a reasonably strong fourth, if you can call it that, in New Hampshire, you know, does that help him at all? Right. Carson um, voters, what happens to them? Yeah. And so, you know, we have this South Carolina poll, but again, it's pretty old. And then, you know, you have other states Florida, Michigan, Missouri, Ohio, there are there are polls that have been conducted, but they have not all been conducted recently. They have not been conducted by a diverse array of pollsters. So, for instance, like Gravis is the only people really polling that much in Nevada. Um, but the one thing that is consistent is in almost all of these polls, even if they're a little bit outdated, what have you, Trump is crushing it in all of these states. And I think there was this idea that, well, maybe in New Hampshire, his numbers are a little inflated, that you really need a ground game to turn folks out. I mean, look what happened in Iowa. Um, but now that Trump has has crushed it in New Hampshire, I think you have to look at these na these numbers in these other states where Trump is also killing it with 33 plus percent and think that there's something real there, that these people are maybe committed to him, that even if he doesn't have a sophisticated ground game, that he has enough name ID that at this point, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't matter. So again, you're absolutely right. We got to see who drops out. To, how does the scramble things? But if I am the Republican Party, and I don't like Trump, I mean, the polls moving forward, there's no like, place where Trump's support falls off. 
he's running the table at this point. Right, right. And we've seen that he doesn't do badly. I think in New Hampshire, he won with evangelicals, but I'd have to double check um, and certainly has done well with evangelicals and other polling. So it, 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 you know, headed into South Carolina, we shouldn't assume that that's not going to be Trump country and that someone else will automatically get all the votes there. That That's an oversimplification of how um, how the Republican electorate has been moving here. Um, and on the Democratic side, I mean, I guess this would be a time to disclose again for our new listeners that my husband is on the Sanders team, I think we should still note looking at the New Hampshire win for Sanders and the close uh, close contest in Iowa, does this mean that the South Carolina and Nevada numbers move around as a result of what happened or is New Hampshire a New Hampshire thing because uh, Sanders is from neighboring Vermont? That's something that remains to be seen. Uh, and one of the things that sometimes folks will say is going to complicate Bernie Sanders' path moving forward is that he has assembled part of the old Obama coalition, particularly activating younger voters and really motivating them and energizing them, um, but that he has he has not done as much to organize the African-American or Latino community. But right before we started taping this show, um, I saw on Twitter that uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, the author of uh, a number of, you know, incredible book, a, a great essay on um, the case for reparations, uh, you know, big sort of African-American scholar and luminary uh, has come out and said that he's supporting Sanders. So um, that that, too, could change. And if I, you know, you, you, we keep seeing these stories coming out of Clinton land that they're they're nervous right now. I think these numbers, especially among millennials, ought to be very concerning for them. And we can talk a little bit later in the show about the, the wonderful world of millennials in this primary. But um, it, fascinating stuff happening on both sides of the aisle. Yeah, yeah. No, Ta-Nehisi Coates, that was a big thing on Twitter. He wrote uh, Between the World and Me. He won a MacArthur Genius Grant, I think, last year. And he criticized Sanders pretty vocally a couple weeks or months ago um, about some of his positions. So that that's made that particularly, I think, particularly newsworthy today when I saw it. Um, so we have lots of things to ask millennials today. Um, the first thing is looking at news consumption. I mean, it's not just all of us listening to this podcast who are News junkies, 91% of adults have learned about the 2016 election in the past week. That seems incredibly high to me. I mean, I know we're right in the middle of it, but, you know, if you go to focus groups, people don't necessarily, they're not following this breathlessly the way we all are. 91% is pretty high. I mean, there's been a lot, some other data. This is from Pew, and there's been other data from Pew that suggests people are kind of excited and engaged in this election season, even if they're not inspired by it per se. Those are not the same dimension. Those are different kinds of measures. And a plurality, just a quarter, say what they they found uh, cable TV news to be the most helpful in terms of figuring out what's going on. Um, but that's completely different with millennials. A plurality of millennials say social media is more helpful. All the other age groups say cable news is most helpful with social media, you know, really further down the list. The older you go, the older you get, the less helpful social media is, which I guess is not a surprise. But I found that really interesting. I mean, social media really just blows away among millennials, the, the rest of this, you know, pretty long list of news sources. What did you think, Kristen? Yeah, I, this was fascinating to me. And also, I, these types of questions are kind of hard because it's tough to, to disentangle social media and just news websites in general. Because if you think about it, a lot of people, yes, they're getting news from Facebook and Twitter. 
but Facebook and Twitter are not content creators. Facebook does not have reporters. Facebook does not have articles. Twitter does not have reporters. Twitter does not have articles. So when people are getting news through social media, that it's usually a link to something on a news website, a news, you know, a video, something like that. Um, so it's fascinating to me that the number one place that people are getting are learning uh, that young people are learning about the election is are from places that are not actually content creators themselves. Um, and I think the other thing that stuck out to me about this whole survey is just on the TV front, the way that cable TV news just destroys network news and local TV. Um, that even among younger voters, 12% say they watch cable TV news, um, local TV and network nightly news trail at 10 and 4% respectively. But then cable TV news dominates all of the other age groups. And among senior citizens, you have 43%, which one assumes a lot, an awful lot of them are watching Fox News, um, based on what we know about the demographics of Fox News' viewership. Uh, but, but that was fascinating to me that, that there, even among senior citizens, 43% say cable TV news, only 17% say network nightly news. So that's, that's a pretty big shift as well um, and, and sort of speaks very highly about the role that cable TV is playing in this election too. I mean, something that is uh, that always gets a lot of mentions as being important is late night comedy. Um, and that's pretty low on this list. It's in the, you know, single digits. It's in, you know, even among millennials, it's 6% say that that's where they get their news. But what it does beat is national paper in print. Um, oh gosh, especially <laughs> among millennials, one percent for everyone except senior citizens. It's so bad. Yeah, yikes! So national paper in print. Um, so I guess this is not one of those ways that Margie's like a millennial since we get two national papers in print in our household. But um, but it is. Uh, it, it's but you're right. It's very hard, and it's very hard when you ask people, "Are you talking about Facebook?" Like one of your buddies just ranting on Facebook. Is that what you're talking about in terms of news, or are you talking about? an article from the print edition of a paper that someone posts a link to. And, you know, people don't know even, even if the question is clear, people don't, can't necessarily recall it clearly. Nonetheless, this is how they think they're getting their news, which still suggests that cable and social media are, are, are high up there. Uh, right. So one of the big takeaways, I think, from New Hampshire, at least that's how people are, are talking about the primary season generally, is the sense that the the electorate is just – you know, angry. It's angry. They they are just sick of the system. We keep having wave elections. We keep changing the direction of government. Um, and you have, a re- you know, out, p- people positioning themselves as outsiders leading in both contests with, you know, with some exceptions, right? Kasich wouldn't count as an outsider. But um, Trump certainly counts as an outsider. And Cruz, for, for better or worse, counts, I think, as an outsider. At least he, he uh, positions himself as an outsider. Sanders, while being in office for a long time, positions himself as an outsider. And you see some the appetite for this reflected in uh, some polling data. And so we're looking at a poll from Morning Consult and Vox. And we've had Kyle dropped from Morning Consult on the show before. They've been working with Vox. They've been doing uh, a variety of different polls. And so this is their most recent one that shows uh, a majority of Americans. This is Americans overall say they strongly or somewhat agree that a political revolution might be necessary to redistribute money from the wealthiest Americans to the middle class. So I, I read the whole question. So People know we're not just saying political revolution, period, which can mean whatever, right? It's very – the question is very specific what it means. Um, 
without a whole lot of difference here by some key demographics, except for seniors. Seniors are leaning toward, no, I don't want a revolution. But the other groups, Tea Party, didn't vote in 2012, or sort of surge or drop-off voters. Independents, overall, majorities in all those groups say that they're open to a um, to a political revolution. Now, there's been some research that shows that these agree questions have a higher agree than if you did a favor or pose. Do you agree if it might be necessary? I mean, you're leaving a lot of openness there. You're like, sure, it might be necessary. I agree it might be necessary as opposed to do you favor or oppose a revolution right now, you know, which is a little bit harder, uh, higher bar. Um, but what's interesting is that some of the, you know, the in- some of the potentially conflicting or inconsistent views here, right? So while people say they support a political revolution, they support uh, raising taxes on the wealthy and on big corporations, even a majority say they support single-payer health care and free college. Um, in a separate question, say, which do you think is a greater potential threat to our country's future? A majority also say big government, more say big government than say big business. Um, and that's true across demographic groups there. So I don't know what to, I don't know what to make of all of this. I mean, I think this means it's very diff- it's going to be very difficult for whoever ends up being president or whoever's the nominee from each party because uh, these are pretty these are pretty tough things to to try and uh, integrate. Yeah, this is I, I saw a tweet um, yesterday of there was a reporter who met someone who said so and so showed up to their polling place. They wanted to vote for that. You know, they met a voter who had showed up to their polling place. They wanted to vote for Donald Trump. It turned out that they were a registered Democrat, so they had to vote in the Democratic primary instead. So they voted for Bernie Sanders. Everybody was like, how is this possible? How does that happen? How do you go from being, oh, I'm going to vote for Trump to, oh, I'm going to vote for Bernie Sanders? And I thought this doesn't actually surprise me much at all, given all of the stuff that we've seen. That, you, you know, Donald Trump is not far to the right on like a, a single two-dimensional right-left spectrum. That it's much more sort of populism, frustration with the status quo than it is specific ideology. And so that's why, you know, when people are like, yeah, but Donald Trump supports single payer health care, just like Bernie Sanders. It's like, yeah, that's you think that's going to hurt him among his voters? That's not going to hurt him. Um, And so like a lot of these things that were tested. And by the way, you know, just like you mentioned, sometimes when you say agree or disagree, um, the agree gets inflated here on this question of, you know, do you support or oppose free college? I mean, I don't really love that question. Do you support or oppose free college? Like, come on, who? <laughs> free college paid for by who? Magic fairies and unicorns? Like, yes. You have to... Yes, yes. That's probably Donald Trump's plan. I won't ascribe that to Bernie Sanders, but but certainly that's Trump's plan. No, um, you know, raise taxes on the wealthy, raise taxes on big corporations. You know, we've consistently seen even, even con- you know, folks that consider themselves conservatives or Tea Party folks are open to that kind of a message. Um, that's why it, it, it almost doesn't surprise me that much that a majority of Tea Party supporters say a political revolution might be necessary to redistribute money from the wealthiest Americans to the middle class. I remember back during the days of Occupy Wall Street, um, this like libertarian writer, Tim Carney, who writes for the Washington Examiner, where I'm a columnist, he went and camped out. Uh, I don't think he actually stayed overnight, but he went to the Occupy Wall Street uh, camp setup in McPherson Square in D.C. and just kind of hung around for a while and walked away from it thinking, you know, the Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street have a lot more in common 
uh, than I think anybody realizes, that they both believe that the marriage of big government and big business is like screwing the little guy in America and that we need a revolution to like disentangle these two and put the power back in the hands of the people. They may slightly disagree on whether big government or big business is primarily responsible um, or which one is the greater threat, but certainly they think that you know, this is a problem. Um, so I, I was, these results actually don't surprise me. And I think, I think they also suggest why Ted Cruz may have a tougher road ahead winning over Trump voters, because with Ted Cruz being a conservative purist, it's unlikely he's going to go out there and say, we need political revolution to redistribute money. And I think that's going to mean that these Trump voters, I mean, I don't think Trump voters are looking for redistribution either, but but I don't think that the idea that, well, Trump voters are just going to fall into Cruz's arms uh, makes a lot of sense because I suspect a lot of Trump voters are the types of people who would say, yeah, we need to raise taxes on big corporations. Yeah, I want free college. Yeah, I want single payer health care. Uh, so I, I think the, the Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump phenomenons, I mean, in some ways they're extremely different, but I think that they are rooted in similar frustrations. Yeah. And, you know, and I think Cruz probably scratches that itch somewhat, too. I mean, ultimately, you have people who are who are mad. You know, they're mad. They feel that governments and, you know, the the elites are sort of leaving them behind and that it's getting harder and harder to catch up. And then the question is, are you a candidate that can, one, demonstrate that you understand that and, two, have a solution that people think makes sense? And, you know, I think all the candidates are struggling a little bit with trying to figure out how to or a lot of them are struggling with how to how to figure out to make that connection was certainly a common worry that voters have across the board. And I think that's what these data suggest. It's just fascinating because, you know, when you see, and this is part of our interview with Joe Lenski, when you see questions that use language that we wouldn't have asked before. It's only because somebody's saying political revolution that there's a question about this in Vox. You know, we would never have had this question otherwise. So, um, so part of that is, you know, are the candidates driving the dialogue and the polling then capturing that? Um, it's an interesting phenomenon to see that, in fact, there's a majority support here. Okay, so next we're going to talk to Joe Lenski, the godfather of uh, political exit polls, and we're so excited to have him with us. Joe, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure. So if you could tell us a little bit about exit polls, their history, why are they important, and, and how do we know we can trust them? Well, exit polling is the one survey that interviews voters after they voted, right after they voted. So yesterday in New Hampshire, we had interviewers at 44 sample precinct locations uh, selected throughout the state, and they interviewed over 2,000 Republican and 2,000 Democratic primary voters. Um, and they, each of those voters were handed a questionnaire to fill out themselves, anonymous and confidential, to tell us who they are, who they voted for, why they made those choices. And we compiled those, uh, that data over the day and uh, present it to the news organizations uh, before poll closing so that they can analyze the results and use the information to uh, talk about who won in an, in an informed manner. Joe, one of the things that I uh, have been preaching in recent weeks uh, is the responsible consumption of early exit polls. Um, that uh, I think a lot of folks don't understand the full process by which exit polls are conducted, but then weighted back to the actual results enabling them to be this this really great uh, guide to why people voted the way they did, 
who voted for whom. Um, but that when those, that first wave comes in and things haven't really been weighted to returns yet, I always uh, sort of caution people. Could you explain a little bit more about sort of how the, the, the exit polls are conducted and weighted back to actual results and, and whether my sort of uh, religious devotion to telling people not to tweet early exit poll results if I'm right or wrong in doing so? Yes. Um, well, the way we collect the exit poll data is our interviewers three times during the day stop interviewing and call in those results, and they read the questionnaires over the phone to our operators, and they get put in our system. So there's a a, a morning wave of interviews, a mid-afternoon wave of interviews, and then a call right around poll closing with the remaining interviews. So there's there's a couple things going on. A lot of what, what you're looking at is early exit polls, and this might be some of the questions that are discussed between 5 p.m. And, and poll closing time, say, at 8 p.m., like it was in New Hampshire, may only be looking at the first two-thirds of the interviews. Uh, so these may be people that vote in the morning or uh, mid-afternoon, and the, the final wave of data isn't put in the system until around poll closing. So that's and, and one more, part of what and, goes on. And assuming perhaps more people who vote in the morning may be different in some way from people who vote in the evening. Right, and I know there was a lot of talk about the entrance poll in Iowa uh, last week, and, and that's even a different process because we're interviewing people as they're entering the caucus, and the people who show up early to caucuses are a lot different from the people who show up right as the caucus is closing. And, um, and we saw last week older voters were much more likely, older caucus goers in Iowa were much more likely to show up early, so our earlier waves of data had older folks, and younger folks end up uh, pushing the limit and coming to the caucus just before the doors close, and so the, the results Good job, change millennials. Just, Good job, millennials. Just <laughs> as, um, as uh, the caucus uh, uh, started. So there's that change in data, and, and you know, we're, we are the one survey research product that gets examined as it's being made. Um, the, the polls that you, Kristen, and Margie do, you have, don't have anyone looking over your shoulder as you're two-thirds of the way through your interviews and, and looking at the data to see if it's right or not. Um, so that's part of what's going on. We uh, sometimes part, do. We sometimes do. It's just not all of America. <laughs> yeah, but not, not on national television or Twitter. <laughs> right. Uh, Thankfully, but no. But the, the other part of what's going on is that in each of the precinct locations, we can get the vote returns as soon as the polls close and the votes are counted. And so we can immediately compare how our survey results were at each polling location and what the actual results were at each polling location. And we can make adjustments as we get that data to adjust um, the survey results to match the actual results. And that, Kristen, is what you're talking about are the, the revised exit uh, poll data that, ways that you see after the polls close. That's the actual precinct returns being used to adjust the uh, exit poll data precinct by precinct. But sometimes you ask a lot of questions that are not just about how are you going to vote or demographics, but a lot of detail about most important issue, how people, what sort of issues people support. For example, uh, last night in New Hampshire, there was a question on the Republican side about uh, Trump's Muslim ban uh, for the traits. And what's the most important trait on the Republican side? It says tells it like it is, which I'm pretty sure is new this year, not from previous elections to reflect what's going on in the race. How do you decide what kinds of questions to include to make sure that they're accurately reflecting what's going on in the campaigns? 
The questionnaires are written by a committee that's made up of uh, the polling directors of the six news organizations that sponsor the exit poll. So ABC, CBS, CNN, Fox, NBC, and the Associated Press each send a representative to a survey committee meeting, and they uh, decide which questions get put on the questionnaire. And there's a lot of debate because there's only a limited amount of space on the questionnaire, and there's a lot of questions people would want to ask. I, I remember being at APOR, oh gosh, at the, at the conference about six years ago or so, and there was a talk being given by, I, I don't remember the man's name, he called himself an exit poll skeptic, but one of the things that he raised was he said, look, the exit polls over in the UK, they ask one question, who'd you vote for? And that's it. Um, and, you know, you all ask all of these questions that give someone like me an incredible amount of data to sift through and try to figure out what happened, why did it happen the way it did. Uh, so I'm a fan of the fact that exit polls here do ask so many questions. But how do you think through the trade-offs of, you know, if our questionnaire asks more than just the basics, you know, are, are there people who will walk away from an exit poll interviewer and say, no, I don't have time for this. I need to get in my car. Um, yeah, I mean, and and that is a trade-off. The length of the questionnaire, we always um, evaluate the length of the questionnaire. We've actually, over the years, made the questionnaire shorter to keep response rates up. Uh, the response rate for our exit polls are typically between 45 and 50%, uh, which I think if you're doing a telephone poll today or an online survey, you'd die to have 45 oh, to 50% yes. <laughs> response rate. So we have that benefit that almost half the people we approach agree to, to fill out the exit poll. The other benefit we have with the exit poll is since we see the voters as they're leaving the polling place, even the 50 to 55% who refuse to fill out the questionnaire, we can still mark down their gender, their race, and their approximate age. So we can adjust our results by response rate by mm -hmm. those demographic groups. Mm -hmm. and, and that's something you can't do in a telephone poll or an online survey because you may not know anything about the person who refused to take your survey. So at least we can make those adjustments as well. But we, we are conscious that the time is limited. Um, it's usually two sides of of a, a single page, a five-and-a-half by eight-and-a-half size page. We usually fit about 15 questions on the page, and that usually takes a voter about three to five minutes to fill out as they're leaving the polling place. And so how nimble or open to change are some of the questions? For example, on the Democratic side, you know, I think that's something that may be coming up now that might be worthwhile for the rest of the primary season is looking at uh, age by gender, right? That's something that's come up a lot in the dialogue. Is there room and flexibility for some of those changes or maybe adding an issue or adding different topics as the campaign wears on? Yes, that, that's what makes the primary process pretty grueling for us because as we're finishing Iowa and New Hampshire, we're already preparing for South Carolina and Nevada and the March 1st states. So what usually happens is the day after the previous primary, the, the survey committee will meet and decide which questions should be on the next round of surveys. And usually that deadline to get it to the printer is about six to eight days before the event. So we'll be revising all the upcoming uh, questionnaires about a week before each event. I want to ask you a little bit about uh, sort of misconceptions or, or things that, that you hear that people say when they're talking about the exit polls that, that might not be quite on the money. Um, for instance, I'll hear people say things like, 
well, CNN's exit polls say one thing, but ABC's exit polls say another thing. And I'm saying, no, 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 it's all the same exit poll. All the networks work together on these. Um, you know, are there any other things that, that you think that people don't necessarily know about the exit polls and how they work um, that would be valuable for them to know on election night when they're sort of assessing what they're hearing? Well, I'll tell you a little bit of history because I do go back far enough to the 1988 election when there were more than one exit poll. Um, I, my first job out of college was at CBS News in their election survey unit for the 1988 election, and that was the last presidential election where CBS, NBC, and ABC each had their own exit polling operations. So I, I got to see uh, for that last election competition in exit polling. So there were indeed different exit polls in 1988. Starting in 1990, the networks pooled their resources because it's an expensive operation and they pooled their resources and there's been basically one exit poll uh, by the news organizations since then. So it, it doesn't have to be that way. And I've been to other countries. I've, we've done exit polling in countries throughout the world. I, I was in Cyprus a couple of years ago and a, a country as small as Cyprus has three different exit polls for the three different uh, TV channels over there. So it, it would be possible to have multiple exit polls and I love the competition, but uh, yeah, well, you know, there's just one. Yeah, well, we, um, so just actually last night, there's, there's a, I think a center-right blog that's called Ace of Spades and they've <laughs> always been really into data and I think they actually tried out doing an exit poll of their own last night um, yeah, I saw their top line results. I didn't see a lot about their methodology or uh, questionnaires, but uh, yeah, we're, we're going to try to. Yeah, we're, we're going to try to chat with them a couple episodes from now. But I mean, certainly, you know, you all know how how much sort of how the resources and the expense and the the, the training of volunteers, you know, just how big of a lift it is. There's another thing that I remember people saying that this was sort of a big moment where I had to push back against people who did not quite understand how the exit polls worked was in 2012 um, when it was announced that there were certain states that were not swing states that didn't really have big, you know, gubernatorial races or what have you that were not going to be polled in the exit polls. So there well, that, again, big... that wasn't exactly correct. And it, yes, we always yes. do a national <laughs> survey for any national election. And there are interviews conducted in all 50 states. What was uh, done in 2012 is there were only enough sample to break out specific states. Um, so, uh, so there would have been enough sample in the states that didn't have state exit polls to be included in the national poll, but not a big enough sample size to break out, say, North Dakota or Utah in in the exit poll, but the bigger states with competitive races like Florida and Virginia and Ohio did have um, sufficient sample size for state exit polls. So yeah, this we always conduct in a national election interviews in all 50 states, but we may not have sufficient sample size to break out every individual state. Yeah, this was something where, you know, me as the, the Republican half of this show, there were a lot of folks inside the conservative media bubble who when they saw which states there would and wouldn't be breakouts for, immediately said, they're doing the exit polls. Just They're just polling blue states. They're not polling red states. And so I had to try to, like, you know, tamp down a bunch of, like, rumors that were spreading where everybody thought there was this conspiracy happening. I'm, I am a big fan of the exit polls, and I know that you all are interested in getting good data and do not have a partisan agenda, uh, and, and I'm always grateful um, for your work. Uh, well, I, I just want to thank you uh, for coming on the show again. My, my final question before we let you go, because I know this is a busy time of year for you. Uh, we know that there are exit polls, that I assume, that are going to happen in South Carolina in the March 1st states. 
But on the Republican side of the aisle now, things are looking really crazy and like this race could drag on. Um, what's the protocol for deciding if you're adding states after March 1st? I mean, what does the schedule look like from here for the network exit polls? Yeah, we, we are committed through all the primaries through March 15th um, and usually about four to six weeks before the future events, the news organizations will meet and decide um, which exit polls they'll fund after that. And um, and that's the decision they're going to make based on their budgets. But I think in terms of the interest and in terms of how long this primary campaign is going to go, it's probably likely we'll be doing it past March 15th. In 2008, we had no plans to go past February, but the race went so long that we ended up doing exit polls all the way to the first week in June. So again, it'll depend on the newsworthiness of the the, the race and how competitive it is. And I think the more people that are interested and the more people are watching, the, the more likely the news organizations will be to, to continue exit polling. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining Margie and I here on The Pollsters. We really appreciate it. Uh, and best of luck to you in the rest of the primary season. Thank you. And best of luck to you guys. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, great. That was Joe Lenski and, uh, we're so, from Edison Research, and we're so excited that he was able to join us. So for to wrap up here, we're going to ask a millennial. So Kristen, I hear that you're a millennial. You wrote a book about millennials, uh, The Selfie Vote, available where fine books about millennials are sold. Um, is it on the Republican side, do millennial women support a candidate because that's where the boys are, or is that only something that happens on the Democratic side? <laughs> <laughs> that is such a trolling question. Margie, I have good news for you. It doesn't happen anywhere. Oh, okay. Did you know that women think for themselves and choose candidates? If anything, I think it happens the other way around. Margie, I have always heard that, like, if, if all of a sudden, like, young women started joining the libertarian movement in greater numbers, that that's what it will take for the libertarian movement to succeed. Not, like, that the girls are following. If girls were following the boys, there would be tons of girl libertarians out there supporting Rand Paul. That didn't happen. Right. Um, I, I would suggest, if we're going to get sexist here, the causality arrow would go the other way. But, no, it is not the case that millennial women are following uh, the boys. It is also not the case that millennial women are voting for candidates because they are female. Um, in the last two primaries, Hillary Clinton has struggled not only with millennials, but with millennial women. Margie, what's the other polling out there showing on this? Yeah, so there's been some conversation about this. And, you know, for folks who were not following the news over the weekend, perhaps smartly may have missed this. There were two different um, uh, incidents where you had Gloria Steinem appeal up here on Bill Maher's show saying that uh, women, young women were supporting Bernie because that's where the boys are. And then you had Madeleine Albright at a Clinton event in New Hampshire saying a line that she's actually said many times before, saying there's a special place in hell for women don't help e who don't help each other. Um, the two were tied together, even though I don't think that they are, you know, talking points that the Clinton campaign gave them. You know, that's not how I think this all went down. I think this is just uh, unfortunate that they got sort of tied together and, you know, happened at the same time within hours apart and then got tied to Clinton as um, as neatly as they did. And, and both had to really kind of walk back their comments somewhat. Um, nonetheless, it did really expose a lot of tension and friction within the women's movement and among feminists 
And something that, you know, bothered me, bothered a lot of uh, women that I know, the flip side being, well, there is a lot of research. Jill Philippic wrote actually a quite good piece about this on the, the opposing view to my own view, which is um, that a lot of times there are things that once women become involved, they lose their value. Like, you know, boys' names, if women, if once girls start being named a boy's name like Asher or Ashley or something like that, boys no longer get that name. That then becomes a girl's name. Uh, when a job has to too many women in it, it becomes immediately devalued. P- people got start yeah, are, are paid less. Women in a men's profession are seen as groundbreaking. Men in a women's profession are not seen that way. So she makes those points. I think those are very those are true points and very legitimate. I think nonetheless, though. It, the goal that we should all have to bring younger women and really diverse groups of women into the women's movement is, is you know, these comments do not help that goal. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. And, um, you know, you saw young, you know, we've seen young women data, whether it's nationally through PPP or in just New Hampshire alone, you know, young women support Sanders just like young men do by a sm- slightly smaller margin, perhaps. But nonetheless, it's age that is the big driver here. Uh, the Washington Post did an uh, analysis uh, about a week or so ago showing that it was age and not ideology that was a driver in the Democratic side. So um, so it's not that younger people are necessarily more liberal because, because um, you know, it was really age over ideology that really made the difference even, um, uh, you know, across different uh, ideological groupings. Um, so I think there's something particular here about age that it supersedes gender. And it doesn't mean that there aren't women voting for Clinton because she's a woman or that that's not a good goal. I think that's a great, joyful reason to vote for a woman. So you could say, I voted for a woman for president. I think that's exciting to do. This is not to say dismiss those voting uh, decision-making behaviors. The last piece is, you know, while this caused a lot of controversy on the left over the weekend and headed into New Hampshire, I don't think it ultimately changed a lot of votes for Sanders or Clinton in the primary, she did better in the exit polls among people who'd made up their mind that day, you know, in the last couple of days. So I don't I don't know if all of that, you know, a lot of times we can kind of overemphasize these last minute things that we think everybody's paying a lot of attention to. I don't really think that that ultimately played a role in what happened to uh, Sanders and Clinton in New Hampshire. Um well, it, it was fascinating to watch on the right for sure, but I worry that Republicans are a little too joyful about seeing uh, how many young voters are supporting Bernie Sanders. They're laughing because they think, ha look, Hillary Clinton can't win them without realizing, hey, look at all these young voters who really love a Democratic socialist. <laughs> so uh, this is my caution back to Republicans for as much as you, you know, many of them are, ch- are chuckling. Don't get too excited. Uh, so Margie, what are the key findings? So take about pollsters, just like about seven or so remaining candidates. We all live to fight another day. Um, and by the way, be thankful that that person breathing down your neck while you're crunching the numbers is not all of America, because if it was, then you'd be Joe Lensky. Uh, we asked a millennial if young women vote according to where the boys are. And she said no. So I'm sure this means this won't ever come up again. And people are more worried about big government than big business, but yet want to expand government. One of the many reasons nearly all of America is gripped to the news this election season. You can find us at, at the pollsters. You can also find us individually at, at Margie O'Meara and at Kay Soltis Anderson. You can find us at thepolsters.com. And throughout the week on Facebook, we'll post links to stories that we think are interesting and might discuss on the show. Great. Thank you.